Good morning. This has been a strange one for me to prepare. Strange because uh, my, my routine these days, I commute to Liverpool and I take the train and the train is where I do my sermon prep. So I've got a little tablet and you know, I do my writing there and it usually takes me something like three weeks to prepare a full sermon and because um, I'm very slow. And I've got about halfway through what I would consider normal sermon prep, and I felt a really strong sense to stop. And every time I came back to it, it was like, no, that's it, it's finished. I'm thinking, what on earth's going on? And um, so that leaves me in a state of unpreparedness, uh, more reliance on God, which is always a good thing, and feeling more nervous than I usually do. And then um, some slight illumination this morning as I was trying to get myself ready, I was thinking about you know, what's going on in our world, in our nation, in, uh, globally. And the thing that popped into my head was worry and how we tend to worry. And so two scriptures popped into my head. And I'm just going to read one of them out right now. So it's Philippians. Philippians chapter 4. Now this would be a very familiar passage to many of us. I made a note to read this out, and then another verse, which I'll come to later. And then I'm getting ready for my shower after this, after breakfast, and I often listen to podcasts in the shower, which um, my wife thinks is a bit strange. Um, and it's, it's all sorts of things. It's IT security, because that's my thing. Uh, things about emotional intelligence, because I don't possess that. And um, negotiation, because I'm terrible at that kind of stuff. Uh, but I thought, no, today I'm going I'm to be spiritual. And I'll listen to a fellow called Alistair Begg that many of you have heard of. He has some great teaching. And he starts speaking. And the, the passage that he launches into is this exact passage. I'm like, wow. <laughs> okay. Coincidence, maybe. Um, and a bit through, uh, he, he's, he's talking for a little while. And then he gets to this point where he says, the God of peace and the peace of God. I'm like, oh, that's very good. And I reach for my Lynx shower gel, and I look at it, peace. <laughs> okay, so um, I don't know whether this is for you or for me, but m- let me read this to you. And it's from Philippians 4, verse 6 and 7. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And the thing that's so amazing about that is it's not you pray, you kneel down, and God fixes everything. No, you then get peace. Just bear that in mind as we go through today's passage and what I'm going to bring this morning. So Acts chapter 11, and we're starting at verse 19. Acts 11, 19. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen, remember he's just been um, stoned to death, travelled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. 
But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, the Greek speakers also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast, steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people, and in Antioch the disciples were first called Christians. Now in those days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius, one of the Roman emperors. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea, and they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Now I say it's, it's hard to project ourselves into the minds of the converts just after the time of Christ to imagine how they thought or felt. In many ways, their, exp their experience was so different to ours. They were living in a time of intense danger and dire persecution. So here in the relative safety of the West, we can be guilty of using the word persecution in a detached way. We have little personal experience of persecution and certainly not the kind of persecution these first century converts faced. We heard a few weeks ago how the disciple Stephen was stoned to death. He was killed for preaching the gospel, for saying that Jesus Christ was God. So the tide of popular opinion was against the gospel. Romans and Jews alike considered this new faith to be blasphemous, and the charge of blasphemy was just an excuse to commit horrific atrocities against the alleged blasphemers. And uh, I don't think we can really imagine what it would be like to be grabbed off the street and forcibly dragged to the Roman amphitheater to face the lions, pushed into this arena we're facing hungry, wild, strong animals surrounded by a supposedly cultured mob who are baying for their so-called entertainment. Or what about the Emperor Nero's practice of dousing the people he persecuted in tar and setting them on fire, using them as human candles to light his gardens? It's, it's, it's unthinkable. And after Stephen's murder, the persecution, if anything, intensified. And those of the Jewish religious leaders that hated this new faith, they could be vicious and unforgiving. And the Romans were cruel and inventive in their punishments. So when at verse 19 it says that the disciples were scattered, we kind of understand why. And these people were fleeing for their lives. I mean, they weren't going to give up their new faith, but neither were they sticking around to see what grisly fate might await them. So we can only speculate about how they felt, but these were real people in real danger. And most of them hadn't personally seen Jesus. They were really taking this gospel on faith. 
So probably what they experienced was a mixture of faith and fear. Should we as Christians be afraid of persecution? I mean, persecution like that's improbable in this country in our lifetime, so perhaps not. But as we see the gradual erosion, the secular overthrowing of Christian ethics and morality, there's certainly more hostility, if not violence, in response to the message we bring when we dare to bring it. Whether or not we fear persecution, we don't need to be discouraged. Listen to what the Apostle Peter wrote later in his career. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. What a sentence. Let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator. I recently read a, um, a book, never read it before, called I Dared to Call Him Father, and it's a Christian classic, apparently. It was published in 1978. I'm sure many of you have read it. And it tells this, it's an autobiography, so it tells the story of this wealthy Pakistani Muslim woman. She was a member of the upper class, and she converted to Christianity in response to an intense personal call of Christ. And God spoke to her through dreams, vivid experiences, and encounters with Christians. And at great personal risk, with some initial reluctance, she submitted and became a Christian. That was a very, very risky thing to do, still is, to convert from Islam to Christianity. And the thing that struck me most about this lady, she's called Bilquish, Bilquis Sheikh, don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, it's the, race, the way she described her awareness of God's presence. So if she spoke harshly to her servants in exactly the way that she'd done before she was converted, she describes this as feeling the glory of God leaving her. If she uttered what she would have previously considered to be a white lie, this thing, the glory of God, left her. Listen to this account from early in her Christian journey. She's not long made a commitment. She started having regular fellowship with some Christian missionaries, Ken and Marie Old, who live nearby. Just going to read a bit. Then one Sunday, I didn't particularly feel like going, going to this meeting, she means. So I rang up the olds and I gave some excuse. It seemed a little thing, but almost instantly, I began to feel uneasy. What was it? I walked through the house, restlessly checking on the servant's work. Everything was in order, yet everything seemed out of order. Then I went to my own room and knelt to pray. After a while, Mahmoud, this is her grandson who she's bringing up as her son, 
Mahmoud crept in so quietly that I didn't know he was there until I felt his little soft hand in mine. Mum, he calls her mum, Mum, are you all right? He asked. You look funny. I smiled and assured him that, yes, I was all right. Well, you keep walking around looking as if you'd lost something. Then he was gone, skipping out the door and down the hall. I looked as if I'd lost something. Mahmoud was right, and I knew right then what it was I had lost. I'd lost the sense of God's glory. It was gone. Why? Did it have something to do with my not going to that meeting at the Olds? With my not having fellowship when I needed it? With a sense of urgency, I phoned Ken and said that I'd be there after all. What a difference. Immediately I felt, actually felt, the return of warmth to my soul. I did go to the meeting, as I promised. Nothing unusual took place there, yet again I knew I was walking in his glory. Ken had apparently been right. I needed fellowship. I had learned my lesson. I determined from then on to attend regularly unless Jesus himself told me not to go. So it was only when she listened to God and walked in obedience to him that she felt his presence and felt it continually. And whenever she felt the presence lift, she'd mentally retrace her steps until she discovered whatever sin it was that had offended her Lord. And that's not a bad way to live, is it? Actively, constantly looking for the guidance of God. And if he truly is Lord of our lives, we will live to please him. Do we understand that? If he truly is, truly Lord of our lives, we will live to please him. We always need to tread carefully, of course, when we're talking about good behavior or right living. We can't become righteous or good. We don't get forgiveness through our own actions. It's impossible to earn favor with God that way. I mean, his goodness is on a scale that we can never reach. But I think if we listen closely, we may hear a still small voice saying, this is the way, walk in it. So when Peter tells us to rejoice when we share in Christ's sufferings, I think we're talking about a very similar thing, a similar kind of leaning into God through the trials. If you know me and my family, you'll know we know a little bit about leaning into God through trials. We don't rejoice because we're hurt. We don't rejoice because we're hurt, despised, persecuted, neglected, in pain. We're not masochists. If someone says to me, you Bible-bashing freak, I don't say, oh my, that was wonderful. What a true blessing that was. No, we rejoice because we're living in his will. We rejoice because, as Peter says, the Spirit of God rests upon us. Our pleasure and our happiness can't depend on things in this world, whether that's exam success, promotion at work, new clothes, a great house, popularity. In fact, we should probably be wary of those things because they give us a kind of happiness that can't last. Instead, we learn to seek the treasure that lasts forever. I've been a Christian 41 years now, 
And I can confidently say there is nothing like friendship with Christ. There is nothing, literally nothing, that can give you satisfaction and joy as much as serving your creator. And if you're not entirely sure you believe me, all I can say is, have you tried it? For the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. The cross cross wasn't joyful, it wasn't fun. But obedience to his father did bring joy. And we have joy set before us. We can live in his presence. So don't be discouraged if persecution comes. Reach out for the hand of your maker. Let him speak to you. Delight in the fact that you're walking in his purposes and his purposes are good, even when the circumstances don't feel good. The disciples scattered, and it may have been because of fear or it may have been because of faith. I mean, it doesn't really matter either way. We learn an important lesson about the sovereignty of God. The truth that this is God's universe and he is absolutely in charge. Listen closely, please. On the face of it, the persecution in Roman times looks very bad indeed. Um, We have no way of knowing how many Christians were killed for for the faith, but probably all of us would instinctively say that even one martyr is one too many, right? And we'd say that because we don't understand the mind of God. And to be fair to us, we can't understand it. Our minds are too small, far too small. Is it possible that all the persecution, all the suffering, all the torture, all the murder was worth it? And again, let's be careful because we should never argue that the ends justify the means. So we don't seek out persecution because we think that's how the gospel advances. We think that that somehow makes it worth it. No, we argue that God works in all circumstances without exception for our good and for his glory. So the, uh, the persecution and the suffering brought about something good. I'm going to tell you two stories. I don't know how many of you were brought up on Greek mythology, probably not many. I had one particular teacher in middle school who gave us a whole t- a term of this stuff, and it was great. I loved it. You know, it's heroes and villains, and everything's very black and white, and there are monsters, and oh, it's great. And one of the, um, one of the Greek monsters of legend is the Hydra. And uh, there's this chap called Hercules, who I'm sure you've heard of, also known as Heracles, who sent a whole bunch of, he set a whole bunch of labors, stuff he has to do because he's offended the gods. Uh, this isn't true, by the way. This is just a story, okay? Um, and uh, one of, the, one of the, the, the labors of Hercules is to kill the Hydra. And the Hydra is this, like, sea serpent with different stories have different numbers of heads, but it was many, let's say nine. And uh, he has to kill this beast. And... He finds, when he goes to fight this monster in some swamp, that every time he chops off one of the heads, two more grow in its place. And uh, so this is, 
he's on a hiding to nothing really, isn't he? So uh, he scratches his head and he's got his uh, assistant with him. And what they decide they're going to do is they, each time they chop off one of these heads, they, his assistant cauterizes it immediately. So he's got this great sword that's magical in some way and he's chopping off heads. And they get to the last head, which is the immortal head. All the others can actually be killed, but there's one immortal head. So he chops that off, cauterizes it, and they put it under a rock. There is no moral to this story, <laughs> except the image of the hydra with the heads that divide every time you chop one off. Okay. The next story is all about dandelions. Dandelions. Mum and Dad, if you're listening, you're going to like this one. Um, you probably know, if you know my wife Sharon, that she loves gardening. What you may not know is that I do not. At all. Not even a little bit. I don't like getting dirty. Um, uh, some kind of fuss spot or something. Um, and when I, was, when I was a child, one of my duties, one of my labours, was to deal with the dandelions. And the method uh, was to take their heads off. So... Um, Periodically, every week or so during the summer, my, my parents would send me out to go and deadhead the dandelions. And um, I don't know, have you ever taken the head off a dandelion? It's got this horrible pussy goo in it. It's disgusting. So I'd wear rubber gloves and I'd take these heads off the dandelions. Now, this is where it gets a little bit embarrassing. Sorry, Mum and Dad. If you want to make dandelions grow really, really vigorously. What do you suppose you have to do to them? You take the heads off. So there I was, diligently, squeamishly going out, lopping off the heads off the dandelions. And there'd just be more and more and more of them. It's this never-ending labor. Thanks, Mum and Dad. This is probably why I hate gardening. Again, no particular moral to the story, but the, um, the, the religious Jews and the Romans, they thought that persecuting Christians, literally cutting the heads off these enemies of the state, would end the threat they presented. They reckoned without the unstoppable power of the creator of the universe who was working to redeem those evil, wicked deeds. So the disciples scattered... Yes, and everywhere they went, they took the light of the gospel with them. The Romans and the religious Jews, they were trying to stop the spread of the gospel. Didn't work, did it? But every place those disciples visited, it became a place where a seed of the good news was planted. Planted so that it started to grow. And before they knew it, the Romans and the Jews could see new Christians springing up everywhere. They couldn't chop off all their heads. What the Romans and the Jews intended for evil, God intended for good. You see how this points to God's sovereignty? The fact that he's in charge? In all circumstances, good or bad, God's working for our good and for his glory. So, things not going well in your life? Seek God's face. Ask him whether... He will change your circumstances or change you in the circumstances. There's something we really need to understand about God, about the difference between us and him. If we close down Freedom Church 
Chester, today, this congregation, would we think of that as a bad thing because it would somehow thwart God's plans? Or if we had a really successful evangelistic mission and suddenly we were so packed there was standing room only, could we take the credit for that? I mean, it's easy for us to say right now, hypothetically, that it would be God's doing. But if we're honest, in that situation, wouldn't there be some part of us thinking, hey, didn't we do a good job? Our evangelistic strategy worked. In either scenario, church demolition or church growth, we have to understand that we are not hindering his plans And it's arrogant to suppose we are helping his plans. Let me explain. So um, we have, this is probably going to date me a little bit, we have a Nintendo Wii. Those are about 50 years old now, aren't they? We have a a Nintendo Wii gaming system that almost never gets used. And we took it on holiday with us um, two holidays back and decided to help James to learn how to use the Wii. So I don't know if you've ever tried these things or if any of you have wee sustained injuries because it's very easy to hurt yourself or everything around you, (laughs) smashing light bulbs and all sorts. Um, So I was helping James to do wee bowling and you hold the controller and you swing your arm back and you release the button when you want to let go of the ball. So I would stand with James and I'm sure Many of you parents have done this with your children when you're teaching them how to do something and you just guide their hand and help them do it. Now, when James got a strike, (laughs) he felt that that was his doing. But I was guiding his hand. And I think we forget that it's a lot like that with God. He sustains us. He guides our hands. He guides our footsteps, our thoughts. And and the point of all of this is that he is sovereign. That he's in charge. He chooses to partner with us. But we should never get an inflated sense of our own (laughs) purpose. I mean... Can I really do good all on my own? And back to what I was saying at the start. You know, we are in somewhat turbulent times and and it's, it's, it's it's a little disturbing to see how sometimes we're at each other's throats. You know, I've seen Christians and non-Christians alike coming to blows over Brexit. I don't think that's a particularly good witness, by the way. But why, why, why is this all happening? Why are we so worried about it? Because we don't know what's going to happen. Okay, well, let's get back to where we were before. And this time a different passage. Luke 12, Luke 12 from verse 22. And this is Jesus with his disciples. And he said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, 
yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? The answer is none of us. If you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon, King Solomon, one of the greatest kings of Israel, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, not Brexit, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourself with money money bags that do not grow old with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will be your heart also. I don't know if you've felt God speaking to you this morning. And if you feel that you need to respond in some way after this, whether it's a first commitment or a recommitment, If you'd like me to pray with you, I'd be happy to. I'm going to pray now for all of us. We're going to respond in worship, but I'll just be here if you'd like me to pray with you. Father God, we do so badly at trusting you sometimes, and we we worry and we fret. And we can't make things any better with our mental effort. Help us to learn to trust you, Lord because we know you are trustworthy. We know that dire and dark circumstances are all around us, and yet you work, you work through all of these. We bless you, Lord. Thank you for this time together. May Jesus' name be praised and glorified. Amen.